0: I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his hills. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you this morning for the chance, the joy, the privilege we have of being able to worship you together as a body. A church whom you have called through the name of Christ Jesus our Lord and by his merit, we bow the knees of our heart to you. We long to receive with open hearts, fruitful hearts, fertile hearts, the pure and unadulterated word of God. We pray that you would speak to us this morning, that this word would transform our lives, that we would be forever changed as we behold our own image in the mirror of your word. May the Lord Jesus Christ transform our hearts that we might glorify him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of the sermon this morning, The Terribly Terrific Work of the Lord. I think I am not stating anything that uh, we do not know, that none of us in here are unaware of, when I say that we live in a culture where me is the idol of the age. We build our lives to gravitate around our preferences, our happiness, and our comfort. If anything should disrupt it, then we immediately cry in jest. If our spouse no longer pleases us, then we look to get another. If we're disappointed with the shape of our nose, then we're encouraged to have it fixed. This me-centered life unfortunately does not cease whenever you and I gather together in corporate worship. In fact, one of the uh, symbols, one of the symptoms of exactly how me-centered our society has become is the fact that I think, and I'm not uh, wanting to step on any toes or hurt anyone's feelings, but I think that most of us, including myself, probably have an iPhone in our pocket. And uh, the iPhone, one of the things that the I in an iPhone stands for is individualized. Even my phone is about me. Everything I do in life, unfortunately, seems to gravitate around me. And we live in a society, we live in a culture, we live in a world that says not only is that okay, but that's the right way. Well, God's word comes to us through the centuries reminding us at the end of the day of three things. And these three things are revealed in this third prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. And I will say that Habakkuk did not, uh, Habakkuk was much like us. He struggled too when it came to thinking that uh, what God was doing in the earth was all about him. Uh, And so there are three things that I want us to talk about when we examine this Third prayer of the prophet Habakkuk. The first is that God's work, and this is something that we see implied or explicated in this text God's work is not about you. Secondly, God's work is not without you. And oftentimes we find ourselves lost somewhere in the tension between those two points. And third, that God's mercy is displayed in the midst of men's misery. So let's go ahead and look at the first point, which is God's work is not about you. You may remember whenever uh, we began this series a a couple months back, uh, the prophet began his prayer uh, in a much different way than the prayer we just read. There's a stark difference when you compare the first prayer, which is recorded in chapter 1, verse 2, to this third prayer recorded in chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. In chapter 1, verse 2, he begins by implying there's a perceived indifference on the part of God. He says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And then in Habakkuk's second prayer, which is also recorded in chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, he responds whenever God addresses him, And tells him something that he doesn't want to hear. He's praying for revival. He's praying for his nation, which is overrun with injustice, which is overrun with sin and corruption. He's asking that God would do something about it. And since he lived in the, uh, towards the end of the reign of King Josiah, we know that no doubt fresh on his mind was the reform, the revival of that godly king. And so it's quite probable, and we heard this, Pastor Robert shared this with us on the first day when we uh, began this series, but it's quite possible that in the back of his mind he had a hopeful anticipation that God would send another revival to Israel, to his people, much like he had done in the reign of King Josiah. But God responds, to Habakkuk, that he's raising up the Chaldeans. And that is how he intends to continue his work among his people. Well, Habakkuk's second prayer, he cries out to God, and now instead of implying indifference on the part of the Almighty, he implies injustice. He says, how can it be? How can it be that you would raise up the Chaldeans who are much more wicked than we and that you would use them to judge your very people? And then God responds to him again with something that uh, is quite a cornerstone of our faith. It's a verse that has become not only the cornerstone of the Reformation, but ultimately the cornerstone of the faith of a believer when God tells him that the just or the righteous shall live by faith. And so here we see that Habakkuk is once again submitting a prayer to the Almighty And the nature of his prayer is different. We no longer see an accusation even hinted at that God is indifferent. Nor do we see an accusation that God is unjust. Instead, what we see is that Habakkuk in his dialogue, in his discourse with God, has realized that what God is doing in the world is greater than Habakkuk. It's greater than his people Israel. That ultimately, at the end of the day, it is not about him. And so we see in the text that he begins his prayer in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now what work is he referring to? Well, he's humbly, submissively referring to the work which God said in chapter 1, verse 5, where he said, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty, Nation. And so it's to this work that Habakkuk is saying explicitly, Lord, I've heard the report of you. I've heard your report. I hear the just reply of God. And then his response is, I fear it. But in the midst of years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In other words, he saw what God was about to do. He heard that God was going to raise up the Chaldeans and bring this bitter nation, this ungodly, wicked army. And he was going to use this army to judge his people. He saw that what God was about to do was consistent with what God has already done. Because when he references the work of God here in the second verse, not only is he referring to the work that God says he's about to do. But he more importantly references the work that God has been doing ever since the beginning of time. And we're going to talk about that more here in just a moment. But note that the prophet is not praying or he's now praying for the work of God to be done. He's not praying that his own will be done. He's not asking God, God don't bring the Chaldeans. But rather he is praying that God's work would be done. So what is he praying? Well, he is declaring that what God chooses to do is good and right. Why would he pray such a thing? How could this prophet who went from accusing God of being distant, perhaps indifferent, lamenting before God that he had prayed several days without any response from the Almighty, how could he go from that place To a place where he is now saying, Okay, God, I hear your work, bring it to pass. That which was once considered unjust, why is he now praying that it happen? He's praying because he understands a very important verse, chapter 2, verse 4 The righteous shall live by his faith. You see, when he began his prayer in chapter 1, he had this anticipation that God's people should live differently than how they were living. And that was a reasonable expectation because, after all, he was a prophetic voice to the covenant community, a community of people whom God himself set apart for the purpose of being a unique nation in all the earth, a nation who would declare his praise, a nation who would ultimately manifest his dominion, his righteous law, his righteous ways to all other nations. And so he did well to have the expectation that justice would prevail. And he prayed for it. But then his attitude when he heard that the Chaldeans were going to come was God, even though we are wicked, we're not that bad. With God, he assumed incorrectly that Israel's standing with God was enough to make them deserving of mercy. But if mercy is something that you deserve, it is no longer mercy, it is merit. And so ultimately the transition that took place in the heart of this prophet from his first prayer to now is that he now saw that the distance between God and all of humanity, the disparity between this holy sovereign creator was so significant that the disparity between Israel and the Babylonians was insignificant. In other words, he realized that it was not because Israel was better than the Babylonians that they were deserving of justice, but rather because God was merciful that he chose to bring the Babylonians to judge his people. Now you may first ask, as did he, how could that possibly be merciful? It's merciful because at the end of the day, what God is seeking to accomplish is much larger, much greater than what he's doing there among his people. It's greater than the light momentary affliction of this weeping prophet, of this lamenting prophet. So Habakkuk has faith in God, a faith in God who declares that the overflowing of the nations by the Chaldeans is nothing more than a prelude to the earth being filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. He has faith in Yahweh, the one who refocuses the prophet's vision so that God's glory takes center stage. What is good for his people is no longer center stage. What is the glory of God and God's glory becomes the main focus of this lamenting prophet. He realizes that everything has happened and everything that is about to happen is part of God's divine plan to redeem all things. In short... It's revealed to Habakkuk that this momentary experience is not about him. It's reminiscent of something the apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 17 where he's talking about our pilgrimage, our journey as Christians in this world, how that we suffer and we die. But there's the hope of the resurrection and he encourages the church of Corinth by saying that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, he does not disassociate the misery, the affliction, in the case of Habakkuk, the judgment of God from what God is doing in our lives and in the world. And if this seems unjust, ultimately it is because We remain at the center of our focus instead of God's work. But God's work is not only terrific, it is terrible. It is capable of filling one with terror. That's why he says in verse 2, Lord, I've heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. He's afraid of what is coming to pass. Oftentimes we set up in our lives this antithesis between faith and fear. And I think we do so um, because we misunderstand the nature of faith. Faith is not the absence of fear. Faith is the understanding that what you are afraid of may and probably will happen. But even if it does, God gives you joy. Because you know at the end of the day that the sovereign God who has called his people, who has set his people aside and ordained them for a purpose, is going to continue that good work in them until his work is complete. Just by way of application, let me say that I sincerely believe that one of the biggest lies perpetrated on the American church is that my relationship with God is all about me. It is true, it's biblically orthodox to say that Christ died to save sinners. And it is true that Christ died so that we as individuals could be reconciled to God the Father. However, if that is our only understanding of Christianity, then we have grossly underestimated the mission of God. And this ultimately can be explained for the change in the heart of this lamenting prophet when he not only is aware of this fearsome, terrorizing work that God is about to do, but he actually prays that God makes it happen. Because he understands that at the center of world purpose, the telos, the purpose of being for the world and for history, is not his own light momentary affliction, but rather is the great glory of God. It's... A shame that as Christians, sometimes we believe that God is not as interested in our business practices as he is our prayer life. Or that God is concerned with whether or not we attend corporate worship on Sunday, but he's not concerned with how we treat the stranger, whether it be an illegal or legal alien, the fatherless, the widow in our midst. James says in James 1:27 that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The mission of God is bigger than me. God's purpose, God's work in this earth is bigger than any one individual. And just to put into perspective whatever you're going through, and I don't want to minimize whatever misery may be ongoing in your life this morning, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment, but to put it into perspective, let me assure you that what is greater than anything is something that nothing can hinder, nothing can deter, nothing can derail, and that is the eternal divine purpose of God. And so ultimately, that is what God is communicating to this lamenting prophet. Let me go to the second point. It is true that God's work is not about me. However, God's work is not without you either. And so we see this break here in the passage between verse 2, where... Habakkuk is declaring, he's addressing God and he's saying, I've heard the report of you and the report do I fear. And he asks God in the midst of years, revive it. What is he asking God to revive? He's asking God not to revive his people, but God to revive his work. Because ultimately he sees the work that God is about to do as, an etern- as the eternal purpose for man's very existence. For the existence of his people. And he continues in the midst of years, make it known. And then he prays in wrath, remember mercy. But then in verse 3, verse 3 through verse 15, there's a a different section in his prayer where he is reflecting on God's faithfulness to his covenantal people in the past. God has revealed to this prophet that yes, his work is greater than Habakkuk. His work is greater than the generation that will experience the onslaught of the Babylonian army. But ultimately that what God is doing, He's doing through and with His people. It is not correct to say that God needs us. Because God needs no one. God needs nothing. But it is correct to say that God for some sovereign purpose that I do not understand. Has chosen to accomplish His divine work in this earth through Broken, infallible people. What Paul calls a treasure in earthen vessels. And so we see here, detailed by the prophet Habakkuk in verses 3 through 15, an accounting of God's faithfulness to his people, his covenantal people throughout history. In verses 3 through 5, He talks about God appearing atop Mount Paran. Mount Paran is another name for Mount Sinai. So he's remembering God when God came down and revealed himself to his people and gave them his law atop Mount Sinai. He's specifically remembering the Mosaic Covenant. The fact that God manifested his glory to his people and he told them that as those who have been redeemed, this is how I expect you to live. The context of such a manifestation was the redemption of his people from Egypt. That's why in verses 4 through 5, uh, the, uh, the prophet talks about the brightness that surrounds his hand being revealed and that before him went pestilence and a plague followed at his heels. So center to the prophet's memory is the story of God redeeming his people from Egypt. The plagues that God sent to the Egyptians because they refused to let his people go. He is reflecting on his history, on the history of God's relationship, his acts with and among his people. And he's remembering that this, too, was the all-encompassing work of God. Then he goes on to talk in, uh, about the, uh, the shaking of the nations in verse 6. When God stands to measure the earth, he saw the tents of Cushan and affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Verses 6 and 7 are the prophets remembering, reflecting on God driving out the inhabitants of the land of Canaan before his people. He realighted the nations to give them a land for which they had not worked. And then we continue on to see how that in verse 8, there's a remembrance of God dividing the Red Sea and God parting the Jordan River so that his people could conquer the land of promise. So why did he do this? Well, his prayer, his, his remembrance reaches a crescendo in verse 13 when he says, you went out, why? For the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. Now it's possible that verses 13 through 14 are a reference to King David, the anointed king of the Lord who slew Goliath, the head of the house of the wicked. But it's more than likely Not only a reflection of that moment in their history, but also a summation of God's purpose, God's divine work among his people throughout their past. That God chose them. He set them apart. To be anointed in the Old Testament vernacular is to be set apart for a specific purpose. So the Levites and the priests, they were anointed by God. They were set apart for the temple. David was anointed by God. He was set apart for the kingdom, for the kingship. And so God's people are set apart, why? For salvation and to declare the dominion of God in the earth. And so here the Habakkuk spends a lot of time in his prayer, in his third prayer, remembering God's faithfulness to his people in the past. Why would he do that? Because he had realized not only was God's work not about him, but God's work was not without him. That's why the apostle Paul says, or whomever wrote the book of Hebrews, says in Hebrews uh, chapter 12 that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, those who've gone before, those who are members of the covenant community, those whom God has worked through to accomplish a purpose which was far greater than any one individual. Someone once asked St. Francis of Assisi, how he was able to accomplish so much in his short and yet very industrious life. And his reply, I think, is notable. He said, this may be why. The Lord looked down from heaven and said, where can I find the weakest, littlest man on earth? Then he saw me and he said, I found him. I will work through him and he won't be proud of it. He'll see that I am only using him because of his insignificance. It sounds very similar to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, when he says, My grace, God is saying this to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So it's true that the work of the Lord is not about me. But due to his marvelous grace, it is equally true that the work of the Lord is not without me. And so this is the realization that Habakkuk has come to, this is the point that he has reached. And so in his third prayer, the tenure of it, the taste of it, the the flavor of it is much different from his two previous prayers. Because he's been a man who has heard from God, who has heard from the Almighty, and his focus has been renewed. His focus has been restored. And he sees that what God is about to do, even though it may be difficult, even though it's judgment, it's also part of his divine purpose. So that leads me to the third point which is God's mercy, is displayed in the midst of men's misery. Going back to verse 2, Habakkuk, as part of his prayer, asks God, in the midst of years, revive your work. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. James Montgomery Boyce said this about this text. He said, God is the God of mercy. So to pray for mercy, even in the day of his wrath, is to plead for that which is central to his very character. Now, I think it's significant that Habakkuk's prayer for mercy precedes his remembrance, his accounting of God's faithfulness in the lives of his people. The reason why is because there's something that every one of these significant moments in the history of his people have in common. One is conflict, misery, if you will, and the other is mercy. When it came to God delivering his people out of Egypt, of course there was misery. The more that Moses demanded from Pharaoh, let my people go, the more arduous and difficult Pharaoh made their lives. And then finally, their redemption came at the expense of the firstborn son of all the Egyptians, and their own sons were only spared because of a substitutionary sacrifice. God delivered his people from Egypt, and then after they came out of Egypt, they were caught between the invading, the approaching army of the Egyptians and the Red Sea. And in that misery, they cried out to Moses, it would have been better if we had died in Egypt. But God miraculously parted the water. In misery, he showed mercy. When they came to the banks of the Jordan... The Jordan had overflowed its banks during that season, no doubt the spring of the year when it has a, pr- a tendency to do so. On the other side of the Jordan River, there was Jericho, that intimidating city that loomed large in the distance. And they were given this land of, of promise, but when they came to the banks, there was no way for them to cross over. God parted the Jordan. In the midst of misery, there was mercy. But they were oppressed, they were persecuted for centuries by various armies that they failed in their reluctance to be obedient to the law of God to drive out of the land. God raised up judges and finally he gave them a king. But the king was born in the context of misery. Remember, when God anointed King David, he walked out on the battlefield and he heard Goliath, the champion of the enemies of the Lord, challenging the armies of the Lord. And God manifested his mercy through David by miraculously causing a small stone to kill a great man. And so here Habakkuk is perched on the precipice of impending judgment. And he cries out to Yahweh, in misery, in wrath, remember mercy. Why would he say that? Because he understood he had faith in the terrible but yet terrific work of the Lord that God was doing in and among his people. These mile markers throughout his people's past were moments in which God displayed mercy in the midst of men's suffering. God told his people in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 7 through 8, it was not because you were more in number than all other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all people, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath, the covenant that he swore to your fathers that the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So implicit in the prayer of Habakkuk is an awareness that even with the coming misery that will justly be perpetrated by the armies of the Chaldeans, God will mercifully continue to refine his people until his work is done in all the earth. There is that pivotal moment that we saw last or two weeks ago in chapter 2 when after God himself, Yahweh, details for the, the prophet the nature of the Chaldean army, this ruthless, vicious nation. He says not as a footnote, But as the crescendo of his statement in chapter 2, verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the work of the Lord. And what Habakkuk realized is that in God's sovereign mercy, somehow, even the judgment that he was bringing on his people was going to bring about and accomplish what God has destined to do from all eternity. So what does this mean for you and I? One, it means that we too live in a day that even though it's full of challenges, even though it's full of trials, even though there are various streams within our culture that accentuate the belief that it's all about me, first and foremost, it's not about me. But it's not without me either. And that even in the midst of suffering, God shows mercy. Mercy, faith in a God who has promised that what he has begun, he will complete. Faith in a God who is sovereign over time and over eternity. Back in 2011, I was working with the city of Greenville. And part of my job was planning new bus routes for their public transportation department. And we had planned a route for the, um, that would connect the southern part of the city of Greenville down to Malden and Simpsonville, which are two s- smaller suburbs of Greenville. And it was my job to go to the city councils and to go to the community and make a presentation to all of our stakeholders as to the benefit of having a public bus route run through their neighborhood. And there was one apartment complex. It was an assisted living facility uh, that I was scheduled to present at. It was called... White Oak Apartments, and I was running behind that day, and so I'm not that good with directions anyway. I, I got lost, and needless to say, I I got there about five minutes later than I should have. I walked in, I, I saw a room full of probably 50 people or so, and at the front there was a podium, and everyone turned to look at me, and they all greeted and smiled, so I thought, okay, they're ready for me to make the presentation. I walk up to the podium, and I began to talk about the benefit of this public bus route. And about 15 minutes in, I look in the back and there's one of the local city councilmen and there's the mayor in the back and I say, well, and I notice that they're smiling. They, they're, they really enjoy what I'm saying and, and that's rare for anyone who's planning a public bus route. Um, and then I happen to say, well, I'm very glad that you have invited me to White Oak Apartments. And there was a little gentleman on the front row, probably in his late 70s, who said, We're not White Oak Apartments. And then he told me the name of the apartment. And then I realized, almost in a split second, that I had walked into a campaign for the mayor. (laughs) And instead of the mayor speaking in that moment, I walked up and started giving a presentation on a public bus route. Obviously, I was very embarrassed. The mayor was very thrilled. <laughs> and as I walked away, I remember thinking, I know why he was thrilled. Because everything I said made it look like he was going to make it happen. In that moment, I, I even though it was embarrassing, I realized everything that had transpired was not about me at all. Now, I tell that story because as Christians, we go throughout life, and we may show up to the podium, and we may think that it's our turn to speak, and we tell our story, and at the end of the day, we think that it's about us, but we serve a king It's much more generous, much more wonderful than any earthly mayor, king, or president, and we are working for him. We are representing him him. And there may be times in our lives that we encounter the just wrath of God. Not because of anything we've done, but because we live in a society of sinners. And that God brings his wrath not only to, to, as a just compensation for the sins of man, but also as a way to refine and discipline his people, And so I want you to remember that regardless of the situation that you encounter this upcoming week, it's not about you. It's not without you. But ultimately, God is going to show mercy even in misery. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are doing a work, even as we have seen here in this third prayer of Habakkuk, that you did a work so many centuries ago that people did not want to believe, did not want to associate as something that would come from the divine merciful hand of a sovereign God. But yet you did it for your own glory. And so, Father, we ask that we would rise above assessing the circumstances of our life from the vantage point of what's good for me. And realize that we represent the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And that it's your work, O oh Lord, your terribly terrific work that we should pursue. We submit ourselves to it and we pray. Revive your work in our days. In wrath, remember mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.